0: Well, having looked at the certainty of 1844, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the relevance of 1844, what it means for us today. And, you know, suppose we were to assume, we were to agree that Christ did begin the work of the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven in 1844. The question that I find is often verbalized and sometimes not verbalized, but implied is, so what? You know, what difference does it make for me today? So why would this be such an important message? Why would God invest so much into making sure that we understand the timeline of 1844 if it's just something He's going to do? It's sort of like, you know, my wife and I have calendars. Uh, we actually have different calendars because we're doing different things, you know, um, She's currently at a conference in San Francisco. I am at ASI in Dalton. And so we have different calendars. And you might say, well, you know, if, 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 Ellen, if, if, uh, if my wife puts uh, an event on her calendar and goes to great lengths to make sure that it's on my calendar too, I'm going to assume something, right? I'm going to assume that there must be something for me to be involved with with this event on her calendar. Does this make sense? This is just common sense, I think, the way, the way we relate as humans. So God here has his, his own calendar and He works on His timeline. Of course, some events He chooses to show us and to reveal to us when they're going to be and what they're going to be. But here He has, he has invested a tremendous amount of, of, of prophetic real estate in helping us to understand something that, well, if He's just moving from one part of the heavenly sanctuary to another, if He's just moving one phase of His ministry to another, why would he care so much that we know these things? Why would, it, why would he be worried about putting it on our calendar if it seems like something that doesn't really apply to us? And the answer to the question is, I think we're going to look at in this hour, the answer to the question is that it does apply to us. There's something relevant about the message of Jesus' work in the Most Holy Place that applies to us living in 2013. And I think we need to recapture that as an Adventist movement and, uh, and not simply know it as an ideological fact that Jesus moved from the holy place to the most holy place, if we believe that, but actually recognize its impact and its importance, how it will change our lives today. <clears throat> I want to share with you this passage from Great Controversy, page 424. Christ had come, not to the earth as they expected, but as foreshadowed in the type, to the most holy place of the temple of God in heaven. He is represented by the prophet Daniel as coming at this time to the Ancient of Days. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came, not to the earth, but to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. This coming is foretold also by the prophet Malachi. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. Malachi 3, 1. The coming of the Lord to his temple was sudden, unexpected to his people. They were not looking for him there. They expected him to come to earth in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel. So you see what's going on. The the Millerite believers looked for Jesus to come They thought that Jesus coming to earth was extremely relevant for them (laughs) because this was going to be the end of life as they knew it. This was going to be the end of the world. Jesus was going to come. The second coming would take place. Um, People's lives would be drastically changed. Instead, he didn't come visibly like this. And in their understanding, they still came to an understanding that was relevant for their lives. The people were not yet ready to meet their Lord. There was still a work of preparation to be accomplished for them. Light was to be given, directing their minds to the temple of God where? In heaven. And as they should follow, by faith, follow their high priest in his ministration there, new duties would be revealed. Another message of warning and instruction was to be given to the church. (coughs) So, what happened was, in 1844 they thought jesus was going to come and he did come in fact he say the malachi says he came suddenly to his temple (laughs) it was a surprise that he came to a place where he was not expected i'd like you to turn with me to that last chapter of or almost last chapter of the book uh last book of the old testament malachi chapter 3 and let's notice the context of what is uh, given in this passage Um, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, "...behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me," says the Lord. Uh, I'm sorry, "...and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come," saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, "...but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears?" for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness what is Malachi describing here? Malachi is describing what Jesus would do when he comes to his temple when he comes suddenly to his temple the same event that's described in Daniel chapter 7 of Jesus coming to the most High of the Ancient of Days. And we understand this to be talking about the same event that came and And Daniel chapter 8 verse 14 and it's 2,300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed and notice how Malachi describes it he describes it as a work of purification a work of refining and what is the result going to be verse 4 then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years What, what Malachi says here is the work that Jesus is going to do when he comes suddenly to his temple is a work of purification it's a work of refining, it's a work of dealing with sin, okay, and we're going to be looking at that here today, we don't have time possibly in an hour together to cover all of the even necessary principles of the cleansing of the sanctuary and what took place and what is taking place, okay, so we're going to have to sort of prioritize some of these things and uh, assume that you have a basic understanding or you can study and get a basic understanding of what happened in 1844 as Jesus moved from the most holy place to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. But what we will have to focus on is the fact that the time of, of the uh, cleansing of the sanctuary, the time of judgment in the Hebrew calendar, was what we refer to, or the Jews refer to as Yom Kippur. And you're familiar with that, the Day of Atonement, right? Ten days before the Day of Atonement, we have what we call Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah was the blowing of trumpets. You saw the picture that I had on the title slide there. The blowing of trumpet. Every day, early in the morning, ten days before the Day of Atonement, the priests would go out into the camp of Israel, and they'd blow their trumpets, a long, shrill blast. On the horn of their trumpets and it was to remind the people that the day of atonement is coming and if, even if you read in contemporary hebrew literature today there's a con there's an understanding that the day of atonement was associated with judgment okay that's very clear in the hebrew understanding now when we look at the day of atonement we see a we see uh that it is largely described in leviticus chapter 16. i just want to share with you this this uh this chiasm. This is from Dr. Richard Davidson um, who's an Old Testament scholar at, at Andrews and um, he has done this, this chiasm of the books of Moses and um, are you familiar with the concept of a chiasm? A chiasm has sort of like, it, we're familiar with sort of the idea or or a similar idea in poetry where you have ABAB or something like that or A B C. Um, or, or A, B, I, I don't know how to exactly describe it. You, you know, how you have a similar idea where there's, I, yeah, A, B, C, C, B, A would be a chiasm too, but you have, you have either a similar amount of syllables or you have a syllab- similar amount of, uh, or you, you have the ending of rhyme, a rhyme, the similar sound, and so you have them matching these different parts of a, of a poem. Um, in a chiasm, you have similar concepts being presented in a way in in, in a specific order and then in a reverse order, and the apex of the chiasm is in the Hebrew mind the most important thought they were trying to get to. So, so it, the, the the attention of the reader is led up to their climax, which is not at the end but in the center of this literary piece, and then it, there's sort of a, a a descending order that matches the ascending order. So in the book of um, Leviticus, we have, just beginning in verses 1 to 6, we have sanctuary laws, verse 6 to 10, priestly laws, ver- uh, chapters, I'm sorry, 11 to 15, personal laws. And ascending on the other side of chapter 16, you have the same thing, 17 through 20, personal laws, 21 through 22, priestly laws, 23 to 25, sanctuary laws. On the, on the, um, on the, on the, the upside you might say on the first chapters of this chiasm you have the focus on the blood and the sacrifices on the last part you have the focus on the person's living and the implications of how they should be relating to these things so you almost have a situation where you have justification and sanctification right in this chiasm in the book of Leviticus with the apex the top uh, the center of this chapter and in fact the center of the entire books of Moses being chapter 16 and this is the chapter that describes the, the uh, Day of Atonement. Now, why would the Day of Atonement be so important? Well, a couple of quick answers from our last discussion, things we learned in our last discussion. You remember that in Daniel chapter 7, the beginning of the judgment was also the beginning of the restoration of God's kingdom, right? There actually could be a parallel between the beginning of the judgment in Daniel chapter 7 and the coming of the stone in Daniel chapter 2. We usually think about it just as the second coming. But um, there could be some parallels drawn there. In other words, if we are a people who long for the restoration of God's kingdom on earth, we also must necessarily be longing for the judgment. Does this make sense? Judgment is not pejorative. Judgment is not something negative. Judgment is is an important part in the salvation and the restoration of this earth from the curse of sin and so the uh the the day of atonement being the, the being the the anti day of judgment or the the typical day of judgment i should say the atonement being the the uh, the time in the hebrew calendar that pointed forward to this culmination of the the whole great controversy it's a very very important event um, without the Day of Atonement, the rest of the sanctuary services that took place all throughout the year, the other feasts, had no real meaning. But think about, think about that. Let's just say, if Jesus doesn't come again, because we understand that importance physically, okay? If Jesus doesn't come again, how, how effective was Jesus' death on the cross? What's the point, Right? It's pointless. You could have every single feast day, every single sacrifice, every single daily sacrifice for sin, all of the various steps in the year of salvation, the year of the Hebrew services. You could have every single one meeting its fulfillment, but if you don't have the Day of Atonement, it's all for nothing. It's sort of like dating. Um... I'm newly married, I guess, less than two years. I can still consider myself newly married. Um, My wife and I enjoyed a dating, courting, whatever you want to call it, process, wherein I was in Michigan, she was in Georgia, Dalton, Georgia, and um, we were trying to get to know each other better. And so it began through a... um, through, began through phone conversations. Well, we, I mean, we met in person first and then we had phone conversations. And um, before long, (coughs) you know, the phone conversations weren't quite adequate. So we would be making trips back and forth. And I would stay with friends when I came up here. She would stay with friends when she came up there and we would spend some time together. Um, Sometimes we'd even do special things together. We liked to hike together. We might even do sort of the traditional go out and have a meal together. Uh, We were trying to get to know each other. We were talking. We were having these interactions. But all of this is was, I should say, with a purpose in mind. Right? The purpose in mind was we wanted to know if this was the way God was leading us, if we were the... individuals for each other, for the other one, uh, or if they, she was the individual for me and I for her, that God would lead for us to spend the rest of our lives together in what we call marriage, right? Like, it would be really too bad if dating, our dating relationship was just like, well, you know what, we're friends. Um, Let's just, let's just keep dating the rest of our lives, you know, me in Michigan, she in Georgia. It just sort of defeats the whole purpose of our getting to know each other in the first place. You understand what I'm saying? And the Day of Atonement in the relationship between God and His people is the marriage. Okay? Now, we, don't, we won't go into great detail with that, but when you're talking about the wedding feast, remember, people invited... Um, Remember the, the, the king goes in to examine the guests because there's a wedding coming and he finds someone without the wedding garments. Remember that parable? Um, that's describing the Day of Atonement, the investigative judgment, 1844. The, the whole point of the, of the Day of Atonement is the, re, is the reunion or the, the final eternal consummation of the relationship between Christ and his people in the marriage that's going to last with them being together eternally forever, never separated again. Does this make sense? Okay, without going into detail into studying, studying that, the Day of Atonement is to, is to uh, God's people what marriage is to dating. Okay? The, the Day of Atonement is very, very important to God. And um, we're going to look at more why that is so. There's a focus on cleansing in the Day of Atonement. So if you have your Bibles, once again, I would invite you to turn to the book of Leviticus and the 16th chapter. Leviticus chapter 16, we're just going to read a few verses here and familiarize ourselves with it. Um, This is sort of an overview because we only have this one hour. But um, I want us to notice several verses here. We, We see in verse 16 that um, the reason it's called the day of atonement is because he's making atonement he's making reconciliation he's, uh, he's making atonement so it says in verse 16 he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness so what's the uncleanness of the children of Israel that they're making atonement for it's their sins, right? Um, if we look down in verse 20, it says, And when he has made an end of reconciling the uh, holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. In verse 29, and this shall be a statute unto you forever unto you, uh, sorry, this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh day, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country. Or a stranger that sojourns among you, for on that day the priest shall make an atonement for you to do what? To cleanse you, that you shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Um, so what you see here, we'll finish with verse thirty-three. He shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary. He makes an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation. He shall make an atonement for the altar. He shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the con- people of the congregation. So what's what's going on on the day of atonement? <laughs> there's 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 a cleansing the cleansing of the sanctuary the the tabernacle cleansing of the the congregation a cleansing of the priest everything is being cleansed and uh, why is this well there's a number of things that need to be cleansed and we're going to explore this here a little further together Um, we're going to look at this i'm going to come back and look at these so um, but i just want to in summary point give you the three things that we're going to discuss being cleansed on the day of atonement a cleansing of the sanctuary a cleansing in the heart of the individuals, and a cleansing in the church. When I talk about the sanctuary, this is the application, not the prophecy, the interpretation. Um, Cleansing in the sanctuary, we're talking about the cleansing of sanctuary in heaven, Um, but it's happening simultaneously with other cleansings. So why Why was the cleansing needed? Well, you remember that the sanctuary service established symbols of the salvation process that um, we experience today in which Christ would enact. Um, you have the lambs being brought or other sacrifices being brought as sin offerings to the sanctuary right and when a person came with their lamb as a sin offering they would come to the temple to offer this perfect lamb as a sacrifice now we know what what the lamb represented right who does the lamb represent represents Jesus the lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world the lamb would be brought to the sanctuary tabernacle there in the wilderness originally and uh the priest would first inspect the lamb to make sure it met the qualifications to be a sacrifice because in order to be a sacrifice for sin, it had to be a perfect lamb. You couldn't bring your lamb that was colicky or, or sick and dying. You had to bring a healthy, perfect lamb, spotless lamb, because it represented the sacrifice of Jesus who was um, a spotless lamb of God. After that inspection was finished, the, the lamb... Um, would be approved as a sacrifice for sin and then the sinner himself would confess his sin laying his hand on the head of the lamb. Now this in symbol transferred the guilt from the sinner to who? To Jesus. To Jesus or to the lamb in symbol. And so the, the lamb now became the, the one who was bearing the sin of the individual who had confessed his sins. Okay? That... Lamb then, and, and we might note here, just to be clear, that sin was not, was not confessed to the priest. The priest was almost a bystander, facilitator in what was going on here. The sin was confessed on the head of the lamb. I don't suppose it even needed to have been confessed verbally or audibly, but there was a transference of that guilt. The sinner with his own hand would slice the neck, of that lamb. And as the jugular would be sliced, of course, you can imagine the, the blood that would be um, emanating from that injury, that wound. And um, this blood would be captured in a vessel by the priest. And several things would be done with that, with that blood. Um, one of the things that was done with the blood was it was sprinkled on the horns of the altar. And um, if we read in Jeremiah chapter 17. If you want to turn there to Jeremiah chapter 17, we see how Jeremiah interpreted this sanctuary activity to be symbolizing the transference of sin, not just to the sacrifice, but also to the sanctuary. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1, it says this The sin of the Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond, and is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. I know for sure that Jeremiah was not suggesting that in actuality there was any type of micro engraving on the horns of the altar cataloging the sins. It was symbolically there, right? And it was symbolically there because the blood was sprinkled there. And the the life of that lamb being in the blood of the lamb, being shed out, that, that, that blood became then the bearer of sin and so symbolically transferred the sin to the sanctuary and also it would transfer the sin to the priest himself. You have to realize that part of that sacrifice may have been burned, but part of that sacrifice the lamb would go to the priests to be used for food as part of their dietary, you know, um, provision. And so as the priest would eat the flesh of that lamb, they themselves would become sin-bearers, you understand, because that lamb represented the sins that had been confessed upon its head. So as the, as the daily ceremonies of the sanctuary w- were carried on, the, the priests were sin-bearing and the sanctuary was sin-bearing, you understand. And the, uh, the, the people would have their sins confessed to the sanctuary and that's where they would stay but on the day of atonement you remember they were to afflict their souls we read that verse in Leviticus 16 what was that 29 or so Uh, afflict your souls why afflict your souls well on the day of atonement as this sanctuary was to be cleansed there was if you you please there was a bit of double jeopardy I don't know if I want to use the right term there But there was the possibility that a person no longer appreciating what the Lamb had done for him, appreciating the fact that his sins were being borne by the priests and by the sanctuary, a person who had no care or interest in those facts should rightly have that sin just brought back right under their heads. Does this make sense to you? And so these were to be, if they did not afflict their souls, if they did not participate in making sure that their sins were being transferred to the sanctuary, then that person was to be cut off from Israel. Very drastic, very drastic measures, to be cut off from Israel. Why is this? Well, the whole point was to teach that there's gonna be a time when probation closes, right? And especially that period just before probations close, it's going to be important for us to be engaged in the work that is going on for us in the sanctuary. You see, the only way that my sins for this sacrificial calendar year could be, con- could be forgiven would be, to, would be if I were to confess them before the Day of Atonement. That's, that was the symbolism being used. And just like, in, just like in the Old Testament, in that symbolism, in the New Testament, in the in the in our lives today, there's going to come a time when the sanctuary service closes in heaven, when there is no more forgiveness of sins, and it's important for us to have our sins already there that they might be blotted out, right? That's that's the that's the lesson that we learn from this from this. And so, here you have the cleansing of the sanctuary in Revelation in, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses one verse one. It's clearly talking about sin being transferred to the sanctuary. And on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the final sacrifice was to be made. And it was, notice it was atonement being made not just for the congregation, but the atonement, the cleansing, was to be for the sanctuary as well, the tabernacle, and as well as for the priesthood. They had been bearing the sins, right? They were no longer to bear the sins after the Day of Atonement. Where would those sins go if you please and this is what we find in the whole understanding of the scapegoat Leviticus chapter 16 look with me again there Um, Leviticus chapter 16 let's look at this concept of the scapegoat and let's just try to explore here what um, this means for us today Leviticus 16 a couple of verses here we'll just read together No, that's wrong chapter no wonder it didn't make sense here you have a, cu- a couple of things here notice with me verse 7 he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats one lot for the Lord the other lot for the scapegoat and um, Azazel is what the, the word is there And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. Okay? As part of the atonement that was to be made, the goat was to be offered as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, or Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him, to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, some people read this verse, especially that middle phrase there, it says, to make an atonement with him. And they think, see, this is, the scapegoat is also having an atoning function to play in the sanctuary service in the day of atonement. But notice what it says. If you want to skip back to verse 20, skip to verse 20, Leviticus sixteen twenty. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar... He shall bring the live goat. So, in verse 20, it makes it very clear that before the ceremony with the live goat, with Azazel, the scapegoat, even begins, the sanctuary has already been justified. It's already been set right. It's already been reconciled. Notice, we have made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle and the altar and, and so forth. Everything has already been done. If you if you look in verse um, verses 18 and 19, talking about cleaning, cleaning the... Hot, um, taking care of the uncleanness of the children of Israel as well. So what happens here is you have this scapegoat who is brought at the very end of the Day of Atonement. It's brought out to be a part of this ceremony, but unlike the other sacrifices, it's not to be offered, and I don't believe it is to be a part of the atonement. In Jewish Jewish literature, Azazel is referred to is used to refer to demonic powers. This word, this name, Azazel. And notice that it's not killed or sacrificed. In verse 20, we saw that it takes place after the transference of sin, after the cleansing of sin from the sanctuary, the scapegoat ceremony takes place, even after the um, the atonement of the, for the children of Israel. What's the purpose of the scapegoat? The purpose of the scapegoat is the last stage of dealing with the sins of the children of Israel that have been confessed. They're confessed to the, to the sacrifice. They went from the sacrifice to the sanctuary and to the priest. During the Day of Atonement, there is a final offering made to transfer those, um, sac- those sins, the guilt, to the scapegoat. Um, one person, I, one scholar I heard discussing this called it a tote goat, sort of like a garbage truck. Um, after the end of the Day of Atonement, the accumulated guilt would be placed upon the scapegoat to remove sin from the camp and to leave the camp clean. And if you, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 20, is what a passage we call the law of the malicious witness. We won't read those verses here for the sake of time, but if you look at this passage, basically it describes this concept. If I accuse a person of a sin or a crime... Um, which is, let's say I accuse a person of murder, um, and the death penalty is the penalty for murder. Suppose it is demonstrated that I maliciously and falsely accused that person of murder. The penalty for perjury in that case, the penalty for false witness, is that I should have the penalty... For the crime I accuse them of, that makes sense. And so, uh, uh, verse nineteen says says this: um, Then you shall do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So you shall put evil away f- from among you. So in the, the law of the malicious witness, it says this: Two or three witnesses should be um, should should agree in order for a person to be condemned. And if it is found that one of those witnesses gave, bear, bore false witness, or any of those witnesses, all of them, then the, the, the penalty that they had thought to inflict upon that person should be inflicted upon them. Okay? Now, this law, I think, this law of the malicious witness is what is being demonstrated in the end of the Day of Atonement. The end of the Day of Atonement, what's happening is Satan is the accuser of the brethren, Right? He says that God's people are worthy of death. He has accused them of being unsavable, unredeemable. And in in actuality, the Day of Atonement, the investigative judgment, demonstrates before the world that God does have the right to save them. Satan is, is exposed as a malicious false witness and the sins which he tempted God's people to commit and for which he says they are to be condemned and not to be saved those very sins are going to come upon him and he will carry them off through the millennium to contemplate the uh, the impact of what he has done and what he has led them to do so as we look at what's happening in the, the sanctuary service, if I could sort of summarize here, and we're trying to fit a lot of concepts into a short amount of time, but if I could summarize here. The sin is transferred to the sanctuary, right? The way those sins are to be transferred to the sanctuary is through, in our practice, the confession of sins, right? So I am going throughout my daily life, and when I fail, when I sin, I confess, I I, by faith, lay my hand on the Lamb of God, right? And because of His death in my behalf, I claim forgiveness for my sins. And my sins are transferred to the sanctuary where they are, I don't want to say cataloged, but it's where they're they're reposited, they're stored. And I no longer have to bear my sins. I no longer have to worry about them. Some people get a little ahead of the game and they conclude that at that point, My sins are as far from me as the east of the west. They're thrown into the bottom of the sea. That's not actually true. The actual truth is the fact that they're in the sanctuary. That's where they're at. And there's a record of them. There is. And as long as, as long as I continue throughout my my own spiritual salvation here, whatever that experience is, as long as I continue trusting in Jesus, Appreciating what He is doing in the heavenly sanctuary, trusting Him as my Savior for sin, from sin, as long as I continue in that walk with Jesus, I never have to worry about those sins ever again. They are not my responsibility. Jesus has borne them, He has carried them to the sanctuary. They are in the sanctuary, but in the sanctuary, they are still there. They're still there. And notice what it says in, in uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. There will come a time, Paul or um, it would be Peter, I guess, spoke of it as a future time. Acts chapter three, verse nineteen, when those sins would be blotted out. Notice with me what it says. Acts chapter three, verse nineteen: Repent ye therefore and be converted. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. And unless, unless we repent and our sins are transferred through the Lamb of God to the sanctuary in heaven our sins can never be blotted out notice what he say when, when will these sins be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord next verse and he shall send Jesus Christ which was preached unto you Paul just I mean Peter I'm sorry just covered in a sweeping statement he just covered a sweeping statement saying basically you, repent now because this whole salvation process is going to be completed someday, right? And Jesus is going to come again. And what's the, what's the completion of the process or what's, the, what's included in that is this concept of your sins being blotted out when the times of refreshing come. We believe, as Seventh-day Adventists, that one of the final steps in the Day of Atonement being the transfer of sins from the sanctuary, from the congregation, from the priesthood, To Azazel, cleaning the sanctuary of that year's load and record of sin, we believe as Adventists that this symbolizes, at the end of time, the sanctuary being closed down in heaven and the transference of guilt from those sins which have been forgiven and remain forgiven to Satan for him to think about during that time of the thousand years. We believe that this last activity takes place just before the end of probation during the time on earth when the latter rain is being poured out, during the times of refreshing. So you're talking about the very end. And then Jesus comes, verse 20. That, that's, that's, that's how we have understood this as a people. Now, when... when um, I, I want to say, and this is, again, we could spend a lot of time, we could spend a whole week just talking about end time events. But do you realize that concurrent with the blotting out of sins in the heavenly sanctuary, the final moments of probation's closing, final moments of this reconciliation of Christ and his people, in in, in this blotting out of sins, there's also going to be an erasing of our own recollections of the specific sins which we've committed. Do you realize that? And this is something that, besides this verse, it's not very specific, but it's very clearly amplified in the spirit of prophecy that during the time of Jacob's trouble even, God's people will be impressed with this feeling that they're not worthy and they'll have a sense of their sinfulness, but they will actually not be able to recollect any specific sins which they've committed. Aren't you glad that you won't have to go throughout eternity still remembering the things that you did when you are here on this earth? There's going to be a blotting out. There's going to be a, an erasure of our memories of specific uh, corruption <laughs> that have been a part of our who we are because of what we've done, how we've made decisions, and how we've lived. And that's a whole other subject we don't have time to really explore. But there's a blotting out of sins which takes place at the very end of the Day of Atonement during the time of refreshing, during the time of the latter rain, which includes an experience we have here on this earth of no longer being able to remember the specific sins that we're, um, we've committed. And that's good news. It's good news. The second thing that is um, cleansed is the name of false professors. So just like on the Day of Atonement, there was, to be a, there was to be a cutting off of people who did not continue to participate in the sanctuary service. In other words, I could come along, you know, the beginning of the year, maybe after Passover or something like that, I could come along and offer a sacrifice for my sins, and go off and just sort of disconnect from what the sanctuary service was going on. So much so that even with Rosh Hashanah, even with the trumpets being blown for 10 days, I would no longer be participating and, carry and following what was going on in the sanctuary. Listen, the cl- and instructions are very clear. Those individuals were to be cut off from the camp. And the, the end time application or the interpretation of that, how we understand that to be is, even if I confess my sins, they are, con- they are transferred to the sanctuary, right? They're engraved with the point of, of a diamond on the horns of the altar. That blood went. Jesus died for me. But if I cease to trust in Him as my Savior from sin, and this, I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm not talking about some standard of performance. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if I cease to trust in Jesus as my Savior from sin. At the end of the Day of Atonement, that guilt which was put On the sanctuary instead of being blotted out it comes back to who comes back to me you see it's at the time of the blotting out that our sins are as far as the east from the west i'll remember them no more and they're at the bottom of the ocean that's when that's when those promises are fulfilled and they're going to be fulfilled amen praise the lord but until then i have to still trust jesus i have to maintain my my love relationship with him grow in my love relationship with him You understand? And so, after the Day of Atonement, some people were to be cut off from the camp, not because they were, I suppose, any worse sinners than the others, but simply because they had not participated. They had stopped participating in the sanctuary service. They had disconnected themselves from the plan of salvation which God had offered for them. And that's why it's important for us to stay close to Jesus. You know, Paul even said, after I've preached, I keep under my body lest that by any means after I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Um, We just need to stay close to Jesus. Our confidence is in Him and um, our assurance is in Him. By the way, we shouldn't go around just dreading, wondering. No. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by Him. Okay, we're not talking about here I have, to, I have to meet some performance standard. No, I have to stay close to Jesus. Let Jesus do what Jesus is going to do. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. But we have to be, we have to be participants in what is happening in heaven. If we're not, we're going to be cut off after the Day of Atonement, after the um, blotting out. So two things are cleansed. If you want to talk about the sanctuary in heaven, literally, being cleansed, two things happen. The sins of the, those who have trusted in Jesus are going to be blot, blotted out in the cleansing of the sanctuary. The sanctuary will no longer be the repository for sin for God's people. And by the way, neither will Jesus. Jesus, it says, after, in, in, in the book of Hebrews, after discussing the Day of Atonement, the annual sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats and so forth, Jesus says, I mean, he, Paul says that Jesus is going to come again the second time without sin unto salvation. He will no longer be a sin bearer. The sanctuary will no longer be a sin bearer. There's only one person that's going to be sin, bearing sins during the, during the millennium. And that's the scapegoat. That's Lucifer. He's still going to be bearing sins. And um, after the millennium, of course, those who are resurrected for the second, second uh, resurrection... Will I suppose be bearing their own sins as well so the second thing blotted out though is the name of false ref- professors in Revelation chapter three and verse five. He that overcomes will I not blot out his name out of the book of life, right So how is the book of life? How is our name put in the book of life? In the first place? when we participate in the sanctuary, right? When we come to Jesus, when we lay our hands by faith on that lamb, when we confess our sins. Our names, our sins go beforehand to the sanctuary. The sanctuary carries our sins, and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's a wonderful thing to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life, let me tell you. Jesus said, don't be so excited about power to cast out demons or tread on serpents. Rejoice not in this, he said to his disciples, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If there's one thing important in this life, it's to know that your name is written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. And those who overcome, those who overcome, their names will remain in the book of life. Those who do not overcome, and we could, I think it's very fair to say it's the same, same except the same reason. If they're not participating in the sanctuary, if they take their eyes off of Jesus, if they're no longer following his ministry, their names will be blotted out of the books of record of heaven, blotted out of the book of life. Now, we're going to come back to this when we talk about the cleansing in the church because it's an important concept. So, part of the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven is a justification, a reconciling of the books. Are you with me? So that those whose names are in the book of life are actually those who are still participating in heaven's salvation process. And those whose sins are have been inscribed there, they really want them to still be inscribed there, and they've not decided they're going to be their own, take their own consequences for their own sins. Is this making sense? So there's something literally to be cleansed in heaven, and that is the books of record, um, to be cleansed in the sanctuary. But there's also a simultaneous cleansing in the heart. We read about this in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 and 31. We've been talking about this already. If I want my, names to remain, my name to remain in the book of life, if I want my sins to be blotted out during the times of refreshing, then I must participate. You understand? This is a, an interactive event. The Day of Atonement was not just something that happened and the rest of the children of Israel went on doing their daily things and nothing changed. No, their focus was on what was happening. For ten days before the Day of Atonement, they were to be anticipating what was going to happen. On the Day of Atonement, they were to be focused on what was happening in the sanctuary. This was not an ordinary day for life to just go on as usual. This was a special event and they had to participate. And this is, this is indicative of the experience that you and I need to have. There is to be a heart searching still for God's people today. Why? Because we have the privilege today of being able to go to the temple, to lay our hands by faith on the Lamb of God, to confess our sins, and to have them transferred to the sanctuary, to the priest. That's our privilege. That privilege will not last forever. That opportunity is not promised to anyone. I mean, we have today. Today is the day of salvation, right? Our probation could close at any time. We don't know about tomorrow. We don't know about the next ten minutes, right? And certainly, for those living the last days of history, we don't know when Jesus is going to come. And so this isn't, a, this isn't a matter of, oh, let's be afraid of His coming. No, it's not that at all. Let's take advantage of the opportunity, the blessed opportunity that we have to have a sin-bearing Savior that can take our sins and deal with them so we don't have to deal with them ourselves. And if we're not engaged, if we're indifferent to the fact that Jesus came to save us from our sins. And that, that is an interactive process where there's confession. I mean, yes, God's grace covers our unknown sins. Amen? Amen? There were sacrifices made every day by the priest just for the congregation. Generic sacrifices. But those weren't the only sacrifices. They were also the sacrifices that God's people were to bring for their own sins, and for their own confession. And some people today live like the sanctuary only had daily sacrifices the, pre- the, the, the priest made for the whole congregation. You know, Jesus died for me, I've accepted my savior, and the rest of the whole sin issue is not a real big deal, you know, I have a priest that's offering those sacrifices every day for me. I don't need to worry about it. Go on and do my life as usual. No. There were the daily sacrifices. Praise God. I'm glad for them. I'm thankful for them. I don't need to worry about, I don't need to worry. If God hasn't revealed sins to me yet, if God hasn't showed me things that I need to confess, I don't have to live in fear thinking I might be lost because Jesus is my Savior and He is covering even those things that I don't know. But the person who went through the Day of Atonement experiencing what was supposed to be experienced was involved and active, and a part of the sanctuary service. Does this make sense? So you and I today have have an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity, to be a part of this process of cleansing as we search our hearts and confess our sins, as we seek to live a lifestyle that would not be one of continued pollution of the sanctuary, but one of overcoming the sins that have so easily beset us. And so there's a number of things that they did on the Day of Atonement. They set aside those things that could lead to pride and self-sufficiency, such as jewelry. Um, does God, is God just a hater of jewelry? No, it's very clear. God loves jewelry. In fact, he, he's the one that gave Lucifer every precious stone as his covering, right? Um, but we also remember what happened to Lucifer. And even though he was a perfect being, his heart was lifted up because of his beauty. He became proud. It's a mystery of iniquity. We don't even understand it. But you know, it seems to me like we ought to have a little humility and realize that if a perfect being became proud because of external appearances, maybe it would be wise for us to also heed the Bible's admission, especially during the Day of Atonement when they're supposed to set aside these things, because they can lead us to trust in our externals instead of in our heart experience. Now, obviously, jewelry wouldn't be the only thing, would it? <laughs> There's many other things, but it is one of the things specifically enumerated in the Bible that um, they were to set aside. I want to take you back to the Great Controversy, page 424. Says the prophet, Who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? Again, um, this is Malachi chapter 3. For he, sh- he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of the holy God without a mediator. It didn't say they would stand without God's help. <laughs> it didn't say they'd stand without the Holy Spirit, none of those things. There's no longer, the sanctuary is closed. There's no longer opportunity for forgiveness. Those, I'm sorry, their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people on earth. Why? Because this is the day of salvation. This is the time we have an opportunity to confess our sins and to have them go before hand to judgment. And so the cleansing in the personal life is an interactive experience which you and I have a part to play in. We talked about some of the lifestyle issues. Also, we, we, it's no wonder we have a health message, is it? Because a health message is designed to give us clear minds to be able to understand our, to know ourselves and to know Jesus better, so that we can have this in time, day of atonement, interactive relationship with Jesus. Um, it's interesting that the, 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 the introduction to Leviticus 16 says, refers to Nadab and Abihu offering incense before the Lord having used alcohol. And um, obviously it's not addressing that issue specifically, but it's very clear just from that reference, and you have to wonder why did he specifically include that interjection into the first part of the Day of Atonement discussion. discussion. It's very clear that alcohol and other lifestyle issues for that matter can interfere with our religious responsibilities as we participate in the sanctuary cleansing in heaven. Now, a third area of cleansing, we've looked at the cleansing of the church, the records in heaven with the book of life, the names of false professors being blotted out, books of record, sins of God's saved being blotted out. We've looked at the cleansing of the heart is something that we have a part to play in today. But a third area is the cleansing of the church on earth. This is something very interesting that I think um, it, it's, it's not something that I guess it's not as interactive and in that you and I don't have much to do, but it's something that we see coincides with ha- our, our cleansing and the cleansing and the sanctuary in heaven. If we look at the church on earth, we can look at it from a number of different perspectives. Um, but usually when we talk about the church, I don't know if there's a usually at all, the, church, the word church just means so many different things to different people. Um, but usually when we talk about God's church, we're talking about a visible group of people. <clears throat> and the visible group of people are people who God has entrusted with his message for that time. Does that make sense? So God gave the children of Israel his message to take to the world, right? They were his church. Now, does that mean that everyone in Israel was faithful? No, it doesn't mean that at all. There were people in Israel who were not, but they were still part of the visible church, right? Because they were part of the people that God had given the truth, the message of salvation to give to the world. And frankly, they were going to be held responsible because even if they weren't among the faithful in the church, they were still, in many cases, they knew the message and they, they will be held responsible for the task that God gave them of sharing it with the world. Now elsewhere in the bible we can also see the concept of an invisible church right an invisible church we call it that simply because you can't identify it you can't say it's this group of people and in um in the case of the visible church god has always almost always had a group of people that were the visible church that were held were given the message and will be held responsible for giving the message in the case of the invisible church we have you can't put your finger on them these are people who are Truly converted in heart, right? So um, they're one spirit with Christ. Paul would describe them as um, they are. They are in harmony with the with the uh, with the with the, with, the, with with Jesus Himself, and so they could be in any different group of people, right? They could be in any denomination. Don't 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 you agree? There may be people who are a part of of the invisible church or in part of those who are truly converted and are enjoying a a walk with Jesus, saving relationship with Jesus. They could be Presbyterians. They could be Methodists. They could be Catholics. They could be... In fact, there may be even some who don't even really know much about Jesus at all. They may be from other religions completely, right? There may be some in that group. So you see why we call them the invisible church, because it's hard to put your finger on them. They're, they're spread throughout Christianity. Now, what, what, what we, we call, I think this is simply a spirit of prophecy term, the church militant. The church militant is simply this picture right here. It's where God has a visible group of people that have his truth and his message for the world at this time in history. And God also has a people who are truly converted some of them are outside of this group right some of them hopefully are in the side of this group i mean where do you want to be i want to be i want to be right here right i want to be a part of the visible group who god has given a message to and as you know we are taking the message of the world but i also want to be a part of the invisible group that um, is truly one with jesus in 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 spirit and, and a, a saving relationship with him and so what happens is in the during the Day of Atonement, this picture completely changes. Between 1844 and the Second Coming, there's a process that goes on that completely changes this diagram. And what we, we talk about it in three different terms. Um, a shaking happens. What's the shaking? People in this group end up outside somewhere, right? You're familiar with the concept of shaking? Yeah? In the last days, clearly under the time of the Day of Atonement regimen, when there's a cleansing going on, there's also to be a shaking. And there's a test in the last days for God's people. And there's going to be some people who say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not willing to, to stay with God's message at the pain of death and they're shaken out. There's also an in-gathering, right? So there are groups of people who over here, they know Jesus, they love Him, they're part of His invisible church. Jesus says, there's uh, there are sheep in other folds, right, that I have, but there's going to be what? One fold and one shepherd, right? And so Jesus, Jesus says, in the last days, there's going to be an in-gathering of truly converted people who see the beauty of the message of of Jesus for these last days who become a part of God's visible body of believers on earth, right? That's an in-gathering. And by the way, there are many out there who are ready. There are many out there who probably have, unfortunately, uh, a, a more advanced experience with Jesus than we ourselves do who are trusting in the truth we know. Who are ready to be gathered into the message, except we aren't ready. And that's, a, that's, that's sort of sad, but it's true. I believe it to be true. God cannot work to bring, now to bring many into the truth, Ellen White says, because of those who in the church are unconverted. In other words, they're not in here, they're in here, right? And those who once were converted, she says, but who have backslidden. In other words, they were once here, but now they're here. Um, God can't work right now to bring a lot of these people here because too many of us are here. And really they're protected over there. <laughs> yes. They're being, they're being, it's for their own good. Yeah. They're being protected over there. But there is going to be an in-gathering, friends. Now when is that going to happen? It's going to happen when there's a cleansing going on in the church. Right? In other words, people here Or maybe here, I don't know. There's a cleansing that's going on that's preparing the church, you and I, to be ready for the 11th hour workers to come in. There's a cleansing that takes place. So three things change the landscape of the visible or God's church on earth, visible and invisible. The shaking, the ingathering, and the cleansing. So that when this process is finished, the church triumphant, as we call it, What is the church triumphant? The visible body of people on earth that are adhering to the truth, the message of God for these last days, is going to match identically the names in the book of life of those who are alive. Does that make sense? There's going to be a, well, there's going to be a blotting out of the names, right? And of course, a writing of new names of those who, who, who who are saved, but there's going to be a cleansing in the church on earth that coincides with the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. What God does on earth is not completely abstract, friends. What God does on earth is dependent upon and completely involved with our interactive experience here in 2013 living in southern union or wherever we live and so what happened in 1844 is not just something we log as another doctrine that we can have as another of our 28 beliefs or something like that what happened in 1844 is an event that God wanted the entire world to be aware of he gave us the most locked solid airtight time prophecy of any of the time prophecies He allowed, like the triumphal entry, he allowed the attention of the world to be brought to it, even though it was the right time but the wrong event. What Jesus is doing here is he's trying to bring this message to us and to us to take it to the world, that we are living in the last last portions of the process of salvation. And the work of judgment going on in heaven is not a pejorative negative thing. The work of judgment in heaven is all about God being united with his people for eternity it's all about the marriage of the bride and the lamb it's all about the cleansing of the church from sin and cleansing of the sanctuary from sin and the cleansing of of the individual from sin so that this whole great controversy can be wrapped up and if i were to make a bold statement i will say that unless unless God's people participate and cooperate in the cleansing of of the sanctuary in heaven, the three ways, I guess, that that are cleansed, that it it is cleansed, unless God's people cooperate, Jesus can't come. And if Jesus can't come, we don't have a resolution to this whole great controversy between sin, uh, between good and evil, this whole problem of sin. And so... To me, the the work of judgment is just wonderful. The work of judgment is not something about me standing and saying, oh, am I going to pass? Am I not going to pass? No. The work of judgment is primarily that of a deepening relationship with me and Jesus so we can be married for eternity. The work of judgment is primarily the work of me being cleansed from sin which separates me from Jesus. The work of judgment is God wrapping up this whole great controversy. It's like... You know, there's been that Jesus died and all of the other things have happened already, but we're simply waiting for this last thing to be taken to take place. And that is for Christ and His church to be one, to be married. And that's a work that is going on now if we'll, if we'll participate in it, if we'll cooperate with it, if we'll allow God to make us um, the people, the men and women that He wants us to be. And I'm excited. Because I believe Jesus is coming soon. And I believe he's coming soon because I see a revival and a reformation among his people. You know, I don't get so excited because I see things happening in Rome or Washington as as much as they may underscore what we already know about prophecy. I think what God's waiting for is his people. I really do. I really think God's waiting simply for this marriage to take place. He's waiting for us to cooperate and to, to be involved. And so my burden, and I, I maybe, maybe have tried to cover too much territory in a few too, mi- few too many minutes here, um, but my burden is that we as Adventists would recognize this isn't just a doctrine we hold. This is an experience that we're to have. The fact that Jesus is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is not just an abstract thought that we know, check off, that off our list, we know where he is. It's something for us to be involved in. It's interactive. It's for us to be participatory in. And so we can be a part of that resolution, you might say, of the sin problem once and for all. And um, I'm just thankful for that opportunity. I'm thankful that God gives us this message And um, so as you study this further, I'm sure um, maybe I pricked a few areas where you have questions. Um, I just would hope that you would make it a time of prayerful study and reflection to see what God would have you do as you participate in the cleansing of the sanctuary. Not only the sanctuary in heaven, but also your own personal experience, your own sanctuary of your heart. Questions? Yes. When you talked about the shaking, you talked about a group of people, for whatever reason, they uh, gave up the message, as it were, and leave the church. What about those that are saying the church is in Babylon, that the church is Babylon, and are leaving the church? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's pro- there are probably many different reasons why people come to those conclusions. But if, um, I, I, w- I will say that fundamentally they would have problems with this slide. Um, whether they, maybe they wouldn't all admit it, but um, they're basically looking for a church that is entirely this, you know, now. And so um, they, they they are discouraged when they see problems in the church, and they tend to see that it is Babylon itself. And um, I think personally, that if you, well, let me say it this way. If you are focused on this group and complaining about it and condemning it, I guess you might say, then you clearly don't have the spirit that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 9 when he was praying that prayer, do you? you see? And I'm afraid that in actuality they're out here somewhere, or at least out here somewhere, looking around and pointing their finger. And I would propose that if you leave the movement of Adventism with those types of motivations and reasons, that you are no longer a part of God's invisible church either. Because, I mean, to me, that's the greatest concern. It's not so much, okay, they may leave the church here, but if their spirit and attitude is such that they're clearly not Daniel's, they're not sighing and crying for their own spiritual clenches as well as the sins of others, then I don't think they're in this group either, which is the biggest problem, isn't it? You know, I mean, um, now, am I to judge their salvation? No, but I can say for me, um, I know that there's going to be wheat and tares growing together until the harvest. I know from the Bible and spirit of prophecy that that not everyone in the church is going to be converted and there's going to be problems. And to me, when I see those challenges, when I see those issues, hey, I... It gives me confidence this is God's church, because that's exactly how it's supposed to be this time. The devil is angry, and he's going down with great wrath to destroy as many as he can, and he's especially angry with the church, the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus.